Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Now this past Christmas while I was on vacation, I rediscovered my love for racket sports. This is racquetball and tennis. To the point that yesterday I bought myself some new tennis shoes because my old tennis shoes were uh, six, seven years old and rotting away. Uh, no, no tread left on them, dust all over, and, and, and actually things peeling off of them. So, But while I was uh, rediscovering this love for racket sports, I, I realized something very much. See, when I, was a, when I was a kid, my dad taught me how to play racquetball. And when you're a kid, teaching you to play racquetball essentially means, and if you have no idea what racquetball is, it's... You play it in a big room that's 40 feet wide by, or 40 feet long by 20 feet wide by 20 feet high. And your object is to hit the front wall and get the ball to bounce twice before your opponent can return it. So you're in a room with the opponent, which means that, yes, you do get hit quite a lot. Uh, my body bears some scars. And when you're a kid and learning this sport, you don't learn any strategy. You just learn, hit the ball to the wall and get it there successfully. Well, now, as I'm rediscovering this love for it, I'm realizing that there's a whole bunch of fundamentals to this sport that I never learned. Proper technique, proper footwork, uh, different ways to hit the ball to get it where you want it to go and what you want it to do. And so I began to look on YouTube for tutorials, and I started to learn some of these things. And while I was playing, I would try different techniques, and, and I would just try out different things while I would play against my friends. And I, there's one... Uh, the main type of serve in racquetball is called a drive serve. And it's one where you hit the ball pretty much as hard as you can um, with as much speed, power, and as low to the ground as possible so that your opponent can't reach it. And to do it, you have to place your feet really weird and you have to, and you have to like cross your legs to build momentum as you hit. And while I was doing this, I had no one to coach me on my body language, on my body weight. So what ended, up, what ended up happening is as I was trying this serve, instead of turning my body appropriately, I put all of the work on my shoulder and my arm. And within about 30 minutes, my arm and my shoulder started to get very, very sore. And that soreness is what made me realize that I was doing it wrong. Unfortunately, by that point, it's a little late. But in that soreness, I realized, okay, I need to get my fundamentals right. I need to turn my hips and my body to carry that momentum through the swing. Because without that, those fundamentals, the rest of my game would fall apart. To the point that after that day, I could not play racquetball for a while. I couldn't even reach over and pull my seatbelt over my body because my arm and my shoulder were hurting so much. And so this morning as we talk about John chapter 2, we are going to be going back to some fun fundamentals. Because it is without these fundamentals that our spiritual lives completely fall flat. And everything else that we do, if we don't have the fundamentals right, everything else we do is meaningless. And so we're going to be talking about the fundamentals. And my goal, one of my preaching goals this year, this morning and beyond, is going to be to make us all a little uncomfortable to stretch us and pull us as the Lord does so in my own life. Uh, one of the sermon series I'm planning for this year and still working it out, uh, I'm calling it uh, Unlearn, 
And we're going to be looking at different areas of our church culture and our faith and of our reading of scripture that maybe we need to unlearn in order to learn the correct way to live and the best way to live. And so this morning will be no exception. I'm hoping to stretch us just a little bit as we talk about the gospel protest. It is, after all, Martin Luther King Day on Monday. So what better Sabbath to talk about protesting than uh, this one? The year is 1955, and a law, several laws actually, exist which states that black people and white people must be segregated in pretty much any establishment. For buses, this meant that black people had to sit in the back of the bus and white people could sit only in the front. For black people, you would have to walk a little further or bend down a little bit more in order to drink water from a separate fountain than white people. And the message here was subtle, actually not even that subtle, but it was very poignant. If you were a different color, you would always have to walk a little farther, work a little harder, work a little harder, stay in the back of the line and sit in the shadows and wait for all the white people to get off the bus first. And you had to stay out of sight and out of mind because a white person shouldn't have to stare at you while they ride the bus peacefully. And there's nothing that is okay with this. Let me be absolutely clear on that. There's absolutely nothing that was okay with this time. But if everyone would just sit in their places in 1955, then everything would be fine. Peace would be found and no one would be upset. Unfortunately, peace does not always mean just. December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks gets on a bus and sits where she isn't supposed to. She sits on the front of the bus and remains sitting even when law enforcement tells her to stand and move. And she is subsequently arrested and would go to trial for her failure to stand and move <coughs> in the back of the bus. She was found guilty of violating segregation laws, given a suspended sentence and fined. And all she did was sit in the wrong place. Black people as a community rose up to boycott this arrest and treatment. And they boycotted segregation laws in general. This basically gave birth to the modern civil rights movement. This would be the moment which gave rise to prominent figures like Martin Luther King Jr. For the duration of a boycott which would eventually result in segregation being overturned, Parks and other civil rights movement leaders would face harsh harassment. But this isn't harassment like having your Twitter feed blown up or people writing about you passive aggressively on Facebook or avoiding you in church. No, no. This is harassment like having your actual house blown up in regards to Edie Nixon and Martin Luther King Jr. When we talk about protests, each protest can be broken into four basic parts, according to the PRD, which is Pastor Ryan's Dictionary. Number one, each protest has disruption. A protest must disrupt the natural flow of things. 
A normally quiet street corner is suddenly filled with people, signs, and noise. A bus seat normally given to white people is now taken by a black person. Someone takes a knee when people normally would stand for the national anthem. A protest is first and foremost disruption. For it to be a protest, it must not be something that you can easily ignore. Number two, a protest must have a declaration. It must have a message. Remember, we are only describing a general protest, not the morality of a protest. So I'm not talking about the things that protests are about. I'm talking about just simply having a message, having something that you're about. This message is usually something short and to the point, though sometimes it can be harder to define or specify from an outsider's perspective. But usually this message fits on some signs. So first, it is disruptive. Second, it has a declaration. Three, it is distinguishable. A protest must be visible, especially to the very people who have control over what is being protested. If I do a hunger strike in my home to protest animal cruelty, and I don't talk about it, all I'm doing is fasting. And all I'm doing is thinking about dying animals. But I'm not protesting because it is not distinguishable. There's nothing visible that is happening, especially to the people that would have control over that kind of, that kind of thinking and, and issue. Number four, every protest has a demonstration. A protest involves some sort of action, even if that action is sitting down, yelling, staying silent, refusing to eat, eating a lot. Doesn't matter. Every protest has a demonstration. So these four things are the bare bones of a protest. Disruption, declaration, it is distinguishable, and there is a demonstration. Notice here I've said nothing about the method of protest, only what qualifies as a protest by substance. We use the method of protest to define a protest by its type. So we would say a march is a peaceful protest but running over someone with your car would be a violent protest. So the method only determines a type, but it does not determine the substance of a protest. So now that we have this ground, this foundation laid of talking about what makes a protest a protest, we're going to start reading in John chapter two and be very, very cognizant that we are only in John chapter 2. We are at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. I'm going to stop right there. We enter into what is arguably the most important Jewish holiday in their culture. And Jesus walks into the temple as one would expect to do during this time of the year. But here's what he sees. Imagine that we're doing communion Sabbath. And instead of having the juice laid out for you, I tell you, BYOJ, bring your own juice. But as soon as you get to the door, I'm standing there and I'm holding juice and I tell you, no, no, yours isn't good enough. Yours doesn't represent Jesus like our does. So if you want to be a part of this, you have to use ours. 
But not only do you have to use ours, I'm going to sell you it. In order for you to get into those doors and take part in this communion, you have to buy the juice that we provide. Imagine I sold you the very thing meant to connect you with something special that Jesus has done. Many of you would just turn around and walk away. But see, this goes deeper than that. Because not only were priests selling animals and sacrificial animals for profit, those that were selling things in the temple were telling people that because the animals they brought weren't for sacrifice weren't good enough, that nothing that those people brought would have ever been good enough. And see, the temple is the only place that you could go during this time to seek forgiveness. See, if in, in our example, it falls apart because you can turn around, walk away, and experience communion anywhere else. But in their time, this was the only option they had. See, the priests were saying, the money changers were saying, we are we here. We are the key to your forgiveness. Nothing you are and nothing you have will allow you to receive God's forgiveness. Your option to be forgiven relies totally on us. They were capitalizing on the temple system to create an artificial need. Your animals aren't good enough for sacrifice. And then they were providing the product to satisfy that need by ours. And because regular Jewish people weren't always reading scripture, they didn't have a bunch of scrolls they were carrying with them and reading every day. Their devotional life was completely foreign and different to ours now. They couldn't possibly challenge the priests and people in the temple. Beyond that, the Old Testament system relied on sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple, which means that if citizens didn't follow this instruction, they had nowhere else to go. Are you understanding how frustrating this is for someone who's wanting to do their daily sacrifices in the temple system and seek forgiveness? To have the priests and the leaders that are the key to their forgiveness, the ones that approach the presence of God, the ones that walk into the most holy, the holy place, and the high priest who walks into the most holy place. You see how frustrating it is to see them take advantage of the people they're meant to serve. And represent. The temple system was supposed to be a beacon of hope and a symbol of forgiveness for all people, and now it has been turned into a for profit enterprise. So, what does Jesus do in response to seeing this take place? Verse 15 And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their, their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus sits down and premeditatively makes a whip in order to use it. I don't know what preconceived notions you have about Jesus' time here. That he was some peaceful guy that walked around and made everyone happy. But this same Jesus that we worship and that we follow and that we see as this peaceful person sat down and made a whip for the express purpose of using it. 
Sit on that for a second. <laughs> Jesus is about to be very angry. Jesus walks in. I would imagine it wasn't just very calm either. Maybe it was. Maybe it was like, maybe as, as he approached the doors, he had the whip like hidden under his robe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe tucked into the side, not telling anyone what its purpose was and just calmly walks in like nothing is going on and then immediately pulls it out as soon as he enters the gate and starts going to town on this courtyard. But imagine if someone did exactly what Jesus does in our communion service. Would you be inclined to listen to them? Or would you kick them out? And then he says, he announces, he declares, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of prayer. There's been a lot of criticism of protests that happen, but I can guarantee you, I'm willing, I'm willing to stake, stake my reputation on this, that there's not a protest in history that was well received by the people that was protesting. Every single protest by its nature has some sort of division. And so we look at protests now and we say, oh, well, he could have done that better. Or they could have done this differently. Why? So you can accept it and ignore it? So it doesn't disrupt your normal way of life as much? Rosa Parks shouldn't have sat in the front of the bus. She should have sat in the back and found a different way to protest. Would you have even noticed or cared? Colin Kaepernick shouldn't have taken a knee, even though the reason he took a knee was because he sat down with a Navy SEAL and asked, what's the most respectful way for me to protest. But no, that's not okay. He should have found a different way, a way that I can ignore. <coughs> Celebrities should stay out of politics and then we elect Donald Trump. We have this way of telling people that they should protest differently and do things differently as long as what is different is something either I can ignore or just already agrees with me. But the nature of a protest is that it's disruptive. And then your normal way of thinking will be challenged and pushed. Now please, please understand, what I just said is not an indictment against whoever we vote as president. That's not what I'm saying. Because my job up here is not to tell you who to vote for and who not to vote for. I'm simply attacking currently a mindset and a point of view see, Jesus had disruption. He brings a whip into the temple. He overturns tables and drives everyone out and yells out his message, declaration, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of praise. And beyond that, just a few verses later, when talking to the Jews immediately after, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. His declaration, I am the Messiah and you will not corrupt my father's house any longer. And Jesus' action was distinguishable. It was hard to miss or ignore the guy with a whip going to town right next to you. Okay, this isn't like those protests that are held off by gates and you can just do this as you walk by. There's no ignoring this like you do the people that work at mall kiosks, right? This is right in your face. And I imagine it drew attention from outside the courtyard walls as well. I imagine that as he was driving people out, more people flooded in to see just what going on. And Jesus clearly had a demonstration 
the way he chose to have his message, the way he chose to disrupt things, the way he chose to be distinguishable, that was his demonstration to make that rich and to be poor, to overturn those tables, to pour out the money and to make his stand. Verse 17, these disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy written by Daniels by declaring himself as Messiah. So my question for you today, what is our temple? What is the house where forgiveness is found? What is the place where Jesus tries to reside? What is God's house? Is it this building? Is it this room, the sanctuary? Is it the fellowship hall? Is it our Sabbath school classrooms? Is it our conferences and events? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. What is the temple today? It is you. And it is me. That is the place where God is trying to reside. And do not mistakenly think that God is more present in here. Just because of this room. Just because we have some pews and a pastor wearing a tie. That doesn't matter. God's presence follows you because God's presence is in you. That is how he has decided to live and relate with his people. I'm going to preach on this later, but maybe you can, you can read 2 Samuel. You'll find out that the temple was not God's idea. It was David's. God originally sent, set up a tabernacle, and a tabernacle is portable. So what Jesus does by dying on the cross and by making this way of forgiveness and salvation for everyone is he's undoing the temple system, which made God's presence anchored. And instead he says, no, I was always meant to be portable and to go with you. So if your body is the temple, it means that you can, you can find forgiveness right where you are. But if that's the case, remember that in the Old Testament, in the temple system, the priests were who asked for forgiveness. They represented you. So who are the priests now that approach God and ask forgiveness? First Peter 2.9. That you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you know who you have to get through to get forgiveness? You. Now listen, when you go to the throne of God, yes, Jesus is our high priest that ultimately represents us before the Father. But for us to approach Jesus, we are our own priests in that regard. The only person you have to get through is yourself. Your preconceived notions, your biases, your beliefs, whatever they may be, your anger, your temperament, your character, your personality, your, your obsession with looks, your obsession with whatever, that's what you have to get through. Yourself. You are the temple in which Jesus wants to reside. And listen to me very carefully this morning. The very nature of Jesus wanting to forgive you is a purpose. 
The very nature of Jesus wanting to forgive you is a protest. It is a protest to your former life. It is a protest to the things that you are clinging to. It is a protest to you depending on others for what God has put within you. It is a protest of you relying on others to be responsible for your relationship with God. It is a protest to your pride, your envy, your deceit, your gossip, your slander, your lies, and your anger. It is a protest to your worry, anxiety, and depression. Jesus is saying, look, all of these things need to stop. He is protesting our former life. And he says, look, I am your help. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am your help here, and I am with you every step of the way. But it's time for you to take action and make the changes that you need to make. This is not the way to live. There is a better way. And ultimately, isn't that what every protest is aiming for? Some sort of better way. The gospel is, by its very nature, a protest. It's a protest of sin. It's a protest of death. It's a protest to the way you live your life. And it calls you to change, to be different, to make improvements and follow Jesus instead of your own way. Remember when Jesus drove out the old way of life from the temple, what did he say? He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And what have we established? You and I are our father's house Today, So listen to what Jesus says as he protests. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of pride. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of lust. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of anger. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of bitterness. Do you see the point? This is a protest. And if you are what Jesus wants to be, his father's house, then you know what's in your life that needs to be taken away. And Jesus is helping us every step of the way to remove these things and to replace them with what God has intended for all of our lives. He helps us, and he helps us get started Remember that Jesus, while telling them to take these things away, helps them drive them right out. He helps them get the cleanup process started by making a mess. He overturns the table. He pours out the money. And he says, this no longer will be a part of your life. This will no longer be a part of my father's house. So when we let Jesus... When we let him in to drive out these sins like he did the animals and the money changers from the temple, what do we do next? Remember the second half of 1 Peter 2.9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous and wonderful light. Jesus is calling you and me out of darkness today. He is calling you into his wonderful light. And yes, absolutely, this is a protest of the darkness in your life. It is a call into the light. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid eye contact with it. Don't walk by and pretend it doesn't exist. And don't protest what Jesus is doing just because it makes you uncomfortable. Remember, a protest disrupts. It is uncomfortable. All 
this lecture makes us uncomfortable. Accepting the gospel and accepting Jesus into your heart and into your life is a responsibility. It's accepting that his protest is right, and it is moving out <coughs> of darkness and into his wonderful Every moment, including right now, is an opportunity for you and for me to accept that protest. To do it, Jesus' message is clear. He says, I am the Messiah, and you will not corrupt my Father's house any longer, so take these things away. I don't need to tell you what you need to clear out of your life. Chances are you already know. And today, Jesus is calling Will you accept that call, move out of the darkness, and into his wonderful light?